Hi, everybody. Yes, it's another episode of Amazing Careers, the podcast that gives you insights into how others have navigated the maze that is the world of work. And today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Gary Lincoln, whose career had a surprising start involving some very early mornings and a number of false starts, including a spell of self-employment before eventually finding where he's been for the last 16 years. I'm looking forward to you all hearing not only his story, but also Gary has some great pointers for what has helped him make the career moves that he's made. Welcome, Gary. Morning, Laura. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good morning. So we're thrilled to have you here on Amazing Careers. And uh, as with a lot of my guests, we tend to start right at the beginning of people's careers journey. So tell me how uh, how school was for you. Oh, yeah. So um, school was... Um, it was great at the start, but then it became challenging. Um, I was, um, as we discussed previously, I was born with cleft palate. Um, and when I got into my formative years at school, that became more and more prominent in terms of the bullying and the not being able to. I was, felt quite isolated at school because of the, um, I was born this cleft palate, which impeded my speech and a sort of a speech impediment, really. I went to speech therapy for the first, first four or five years of my life. But and then it became prominent more in the later end of my school years. But um, so school wasn't brilliant for me, not at all. And I come out of school with very little qualifications, scraped through some GCSEs. Um, and I think that was probably more bound to the fact that I didn't have a great time at school, really. And I did want to start with that because I wanted I want people to know that as we try and talk all the way through these episodes, that how you start does absolutely not have to dictate how things pan out as you move through your career journey. So you did have uh, quite an interesting job uh, while you were at school, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, involves some very early starts. Yeah. So when I was at school, I was, I've always worked. So uh, paper rounds and things like that. But um, my mum worked in a patisserie. She was like the manager of the patisserie. And they were looking for a Saturday boy. I mean, a Saturday boy is basically someone who puts jam in donuts and cleans up behind the apprentices and the other pastry chefs. Um, so I'd done that virtually from the age of 15, 14, 15. And I carried on that career even in, back in when I started work. So I ended up being um, a, sort of a Saturday boy, a Sunday boy for this patisserie, which then enhanced my career moving forward. Wonderful. And I mean, I'm impressed with anyone at that age getting up at 4am. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It, actually, at that age, it was easier. It's when you become older and a teenager and, you're, and then you start getting into uh, social life that it becomes even more challenging. <laughs> so an opportunity did open up for you um, in that job when the apprentice who was currently there was leaving. Yeah, so I... When I left school, as I said a bit earlier, I didn't walk away with much really, but I, I did start my career as, um, at John Lang's, where Lang and Walker's it is now, as a junior accounts clerk, which junior accounts clerk is a very glamorous title for somebody who used to stuff checks in an envelope for three days a week. <laughs> um, so, but during that time, I also um, carried on doing this Saturday job. I must, there must have been something that drew me to it. Um, so I carried on doing that as well every Saturday. And then about a year into my so-called career at, at Langer Rooks, um, my then boss at the patisserie, Ronan Shores, Richard uh, Ronan Shores said to me, look, um, Lee, the apprentice who I used to work under, is leaving. He's fulfilled his apprenticeship. He's going to go off travelling. So we've got a gap. Would you, would you want it? 
And so without any hesitation, said yes. So hand my notice in at Lang and Walk and started a journey as a pastry chef um, and a baker on a four-year apprenticeship, which involved day school uh, working, but also one day a week and two nights at night school as well. So that was a four-year apprenticeship. Um, learn and I stayed there for 10 years so I, I really 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 enjoyable career there worked under um, a month uh, and uh, a wife and husband team Richard and Carol who were actually and it's only as I got older I understand how brilliant they were for me because actually they're probably I probably should have got sacked many times for turning up late for burning things and whatever but actually they they saw something in me that um, I probably didn't see him myself at the time um, and persevered with me but I, and kept pushing me through. So they were um, really, really fundamental to my career. Sometimes we just need some of those great people in our lives that just see that thing in us and support us. So good on them for doing that. Uh, and you've talked about you learned not only pastry skills, but also life skills. And we did discuss earlier about what were those life skills that you, you feel that you picked up there that you've carried on through. Can you share me share some of those with us all? Yes, of course. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. So during uh when you're a pastry chef, there's you, there's you work within a team environment, so it's very important that everyone turns up to work on time, and you actually the massive, massive team effort to produce the goods to get out on into the shop floor. But so part of those is actually showing up to work every day, and I don't mean just showing up, but actually showing up to be with your colleagues. So one of the one of the, one of the big lessons I learned from Richard was when you walked into. The, the kitchen we used to call it and we'd walk into the back of the kitchen in the bakery um no matter whatever time you turned up whether you were late early you always had to greet the office the greet the, the, the floor basically um and that was so I, bear in mind i was sort of young teenager going out on, on a, at night and then walking in some days quite late so you walk in sheepishly going like that and then richard would say to me gary come back here right go back to the beginning of the day and we start again Oh, yeah. And right, okay. Walk in. Right. Morning, team. How are we? Sorry, I'm late. Get to the back, get changed, and come start work. And I still use that, that analogy that I need, you need to show up to work every day. When you show up, you greet your teammates. We're here. We're here to work together and we're here to move forward. And I've got that really. And that, it's amazing that that little thing has resonated with me throughout my whole career about when you show up for work, you show up for work. And you're there to work. You're there to support your teammates and move forward in the right direction. And so there's so that's one lesson. But also lots about being hard work is a given, in my opinion. Um, and then you've also got lots of humility and respect for your teammates and the people around you as well. So um, there's lots of things there that, in hindsight, but that showing up for work is really important. Showing up and being present to your teammates every day. And actually, since you shared that with me, I have to admit, I've taken that into my work environment. So I go into the office two days a week and I do think when I'm there, let me go around, say hello to everybody, let people know I'm here. We all hot desks. So you sit in different places all the time and the sales team is on one side of the room and the uh, delivery team's on the other and we don't always walk across. So I've been even taking that on board and making sure people know I'm there and ready to work and support them. So that was really no, valuable for me. So thank you. No, thank you. Um, yeah, and just out of interest, because we're, we're going to move away from pastry um, chefing, although it was it was a big chunk of your career, but uh, some uh, lots has happened since then. But tell me, do you still enjoy 
baking? Um, I don't do it at all, Laura. <laughs> I, taught my, <laughs> I taught my daughter, who's now 20, to make cakes and bread at four or five years old. Um, and she does it sometimes now. But actually, I've, I don't, I very rarely do it. I cook, but I don't do pastry. No, it's, I find the whole process quite it's a lot um, of work, isn't it? Hard yeah. work yeah. when you haven't got all your equipment around you at home. And I'd yeah. rather just go and buy it from Mark Suspensers or Pat, Pat, Valerie Patisserie, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, so uh, you did have a good stint there, but obviously competition got tough. And um, there did come a point where you had to move on. And you moved into what you described to me as your second best job ever. Yeah. So the reason why I left being a pastry chef is just so people know is that during the time I was doing it, I'm 53, so we're talking nine, the early 2000s, um, competition from Tesco's and Sainsbury's and things like that were driving the market in terms of stack it high and sell it cheap type scenario. And that also related back into patisserie and bakery as well. So you'd be able to, we were trying to compete with them. They were knocking out a, a birthday cake for three pounds and we couldn't even compete with that. So um, it become quite, laborious and that uh, it sort of took the love out of the job for me I really did love the job at start but it took the job the love out of the job for me and so I ended up um quitting that and sort of walking away from it I got an opportunity to uh, go and work with a friend who had a sports uh, business who used to sell sports equipment to um, schools and colleges, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I've done that for about 12 months. But then my second best job is I went and started selling corporate golf days into the city. So we had to go in, sell like, to the KPMG and Reuters, corporate golf days when you were allowed to do that. Um, and I used to travel the country and, and the world actually hosting uh, golf days, which was a really, really brilliant job. However, it didn't really pay the bills. Um, so it's great having a great job, but you've got to find way. You've got a great a great job with purpose, but it's also got to pay your mortgages as well. So I end up walking away from that and then going into, which is now fundamentally my second career. And the theme that we're going to hear as, as you talk through the rest of the changes you've made is this idea of being curious to find out more because you've really leveraged the people that you've known sometimes inadvertently not necessarily looking for a job per se but just being curious about what they're doing um and the corporate golf days was a good example of that but uh, and the fact that you you know you had friends in sales and you you got into that but you then moved into the recruitment side of things yes so yeah on that point so I've actually never really had a proper interview my whole career because it's all been about the people I know so I got my job as a pay, apprentice pastry chef because my mum worked in the shop and then subsequently got the job through the back of that. And then the corporate golf days, it was a friend of mine also said, come on, we'll give you a chance. And then also got into recruitment. So it's always about, and I actually, again, it only resonates as I get older, how much, how really important building up networks is, but actually building up networks within like-minded people who but also don't abuse those networks as well. So I'm a great, I'm a great fan of a book called The Go-Giver, which talks about actually going into relationships and conversations and meetings about what you can give that meeting or relationship rather than what you can take from it. Um, and that's resonating more as I got older. But So the corporate golf days was in the back of a friend and then being curious about the recruitment industry. So friends of mine were in recruitment and I 
saw that maybe that could be a potential career move for me. So I reached out to a friend of mine, a guy called Saul Fieldpot, who was at the time the general manager for a company called Short-Term Engineers. So I called him and said, look, I'm thinking of going into recruitment. Would you mind um, giving me some time so I can understand it? And tell So I drove down to Heathrow Airport where he was working at the time and sat in the back of office with him for two, three hours talking about the sales process, what recruitment entails, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then after three, after three hours, come away with a job. Um, you know, I said, look, I can, why don't you come and work here? Basically, I can give you a start. You can start Monday, but you're going to have to start on 12 grand a year. You're going to have to start at the bottom. And at the time, I was 27, I think it was, 27 years old, just got married and just got my first mortgage. So um, money was tight anyway. But I looked at it as an opportunity to grow within an organisation, but take a bit of a risk as well. Um, and I've got that on the back of being curious, reaching out to my network, asking questions, um, and then got the opportunity that fundamentally has now seen me through the last 25 years of my, of my life, really. And I do just want to draw the attention of any of my regular listeners to the episode from Malta with Love. And Leah talks about exactly the same thing, where using her network, being curious, just really helped her make some big changes as well. So it's really great to have that messaging echoed. And you were there for a long time. It sounds like you described it as a wolf of Wall Street, that particular environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you became a divisional manager and uh, ultimately had a successful 10 years there before you moved on. Yeah, so yeah, the 10 years, I mean, literally it wasn't all uh, roses. The first nine months I nearly got sacked for not producing what you should have been producing. I quickly realised to be good at recruitment, You've got to be pretty selfish. Um, that's changed as we as the, as the industry's developed. But actually, at the very beginning, what was very much Wolf of Wall Street, you looked after yourself, um, which I didn't really truly understand for the first nine months. But as I progressed through it and become more uh, sales orientated and hungry for it, I've become uh, successful in that industry um, and stayed there for 10 years. So and progressed through the ranks and ended up being a division manager for them. Um, still back in the Heathrow Airport, set up lots of divisions for them um, across the across their sphere, um, and they're still going. They're still very successful today. And then in two thousand and five, I um, decided my time with short term was coming to an end, so I left. And I didn't really have a plan B. I just left. I just needed to. I just knew that I needed to get out and and do something else. Um, whether that was recruitment or was that was going to be something else at the time, I didn't really understand or didn't know. And after sort of licking my wounds and sort of sitting there in a bit of self-pity for about a month, decided, well, okay, let's do it for myself. So I set up a my own recruitment business called Oak Hill Recruitment. Um, I spent hours deliberating over that name. Bear in mind, I lived on Oak Hill Road and I was going to set up a recruitment company. So I called it Oak Hill Recruitment. Um, so I've done that for about sitting in my own bedroom almost for about six to eight months um but i found that lord quite lonely and a bit isolating um people going to recruitment generally to be around other people and to be that that sort of connection with, with human beings and i didn't get it and i actually probably missed it it's only so many times you can pat yourself on the back and say that's a brilliant call gary and then look around and there's no one else no one else <laughs> saying the same thing so i at the time my then ex-colleague guy called Kieran Gallimore had also set up a business called TXM and he's got into partnership with a guy called Lawrence Seward who had an engineering company who was backing him and Kieran and I had many many conversations over dinner and a few drinks 
And eventually, uh, Kieran said, come on, let's go and do it together. Let's join forces and do it together. We can go faster, quicker, et cetera, et cetera. So I went down to then, and even at that time I was resident because I actually always wanted to do something my own, be my own boss, make my own decisions, good and bad. But I went to go and see the team, at T- uh, the small team that was there at TXM then, um, and come away and said, right, can we start? So I rolled my little bit into their bigger bit. Um, and I started on July 2006 with them, um, with five of us sitting around a desk, myself, Kieran, Keith, Simon and Paul. Um, and we've now grown that business now to uh, 300 staff. We turn over £200 million and we're in Australia, Dubai, we've got a small offer in America, but up and down the UK. And we cover engineering, technology and healthcare sectors across that. So we've got that's 19 separate businesses across that 200 million pound portfolio of businesses. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, what I like about this section uh, is this idea that you can take, do the self, do, do the self-employment piece, run your own business. And that is quite a common step that people take, particularly all the conversations I've had for this podcast, where a lot of people are like, I want to do my own thing. I want to make my own decisions. I want to own my own journey. And they do the self-employment side or the, or sorry, the consultancy or running their own business. And it's interesting that it doesn't always work out and that's okay. And it, it can feel like the pinnacle because you're your own boss, but certainly for myself, I've, that's, that's something I knew I wouldn't be good at. A lot of it, for the reasons you said, I get a lot of my energy from other people and sort of doing it on my own for myself doesn't actually sound very appealing. So I think for me, it was very refreshing to hear you say, I tried it and and it, it wasn't right for me. But again, using your network, building relationships, you you were able to then move into, into something that's really been quite successful for you. Yeah, and I, I actually think, bear in mind, we're talking 25 God, 16, 17 years ago now. Um, I actually think it's, I'm going to say slightly easier, but it's also more difficult because more competition. It's easier because we've got technology now, Zoom, the Teams, the internet, we've got LinkedIn, all these other connections where you can have one-to-one connection pretty quickly over that over that social media part. But that also makes it more difficult because there's more and more people have access, there's lower, there's lower barriers to entry to all those industries as well. So but I'm very much a people person. And I was then, as I got older, I can be, I can very much work for myself on my own. I mean, I work from home most days nowadays um, because we've got teams running running the organisation. So, but I work from home most days and I go into London two or three days a week as well. But so I had that nice blend of having my own space, my own time to get on with the stuff I need to do, but also that stu- still have that human connection with the outside world. And I'll go into the office sometimes at once a week, maybe as well. So, but I, I, I do like the the blend I've got now as well. Um, but yes, there's lot. It, it, self-employment sounds great, and it sounds like oh yeah, my own boss. But it doesn't. It's not. It doesn't suit everyone. It's not suit, and it's not failure. It just means that it's not for you. Not exactly. For you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and you've you have got a sort of extra string to your bow at the moment, where you, you've talked about actually your role now as group director is almost more of a coaching and mentoring role but you've actually been able to to spend a bit more time in that area I think yeah so that came about I'm I'm very much an active member of an organization called women in transport which encourages empowers women to get into the transport sector and part of that process is they've got a mentoring program which uh, as TXM we sponsor that 
Um, and rather than just throwing money at it, I thought I'd actually become um, part of the solution rather than problem um, and become a mentor. So a mentor for, I've been doing it for five years, but really raised a, an interest in me about actually I've got a lot to offer other people in terms of my knowledge and experience around the industry, not only that industry, but actually how to get the best out of yourselves. Um, so that mentorship, I took that mentorship and then um, went on a journey to become an executive coach. So I um, went done my diploma in executive coaching uh, just before the pandemic, actually, just before the pandemic, done my diploma in executive coaching. And that's something I very much enjoy doing now. So more of a mentorship sort of coaching type relationship. And I think that coaching diploma done is actually maybe a far better manager, director, actually a better salesperson as well into because I still have to do BD as well so I step better because I ask better I think I ask better questions I'm more curious I listen more to other people than I previously did or rather than previously trying to give everyone the answers actually very much everyone has got their own answers they just need the right questions to get them about so yes the exec coaching law has been really fulfilling the last sort of two years yeah, I, I can certainly empathise with that, given um, I work for a digital coaching business and have done um, am a coach myself. So I hear you on that. It does really make you stop and think a bit more about the, the question asking and not always needing to have the answers. And actually, people have yeah. the answers in themselves. They just need the, the space to think through that. So, um, so I'm, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, you come to this this podcast with a lot of advice to share and we've talked through some of those already this idea of really showing up at work which uh, as I said is something I've actually taken on board the idea of being curious finding out more the idea of using your network but not abusing your network and you gave that great recommendation for a book the go-giver was it the book yeah, recommendation? Go-giver, yeah it's brilliant 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 book and there's another one called the getting naked as well which is on the similar theme so both brilliant books and we talked before about this idea of inadvertent networking. And I think for people who are starting out in their careers or maybe aren't natural extroverts, the word networking fills people with dread, fills some people with dread and yeah. sounds like a really formal thing that has to be skilled up and you have to really learn how to do it. But actually, you and I have spoken about the fact that it can it can be really inadvertent nowadays, particularly with the digital world and things like LinkedIn. So tell me a bit about that. Yes, I mean, LinkedIn's been uh, an eye-opening for me over the last sort of two years, because due to the, the pandemic, really. So before the pandemic, I really wasn't really on LinkedIn. I've done a bit on it, but not really. I didn't really truly understand it until I started realising actually my my work is built up about conversations with people going into London, going to Manchester, all over the country, having conversations with people about how we can help them on their journey into recruitment, get better people. And then when I got to the pandemic, I realised I can't come out of this room. So I engaged with LinkedIn. I started to investigate about LinkedIn and realised actually LinkedIn is just a massive networking ecosystem where you have it's almost like going into a massive hall with every single person that you ever want to connect with is on that platform near enough and but there's no point in just connecting and then standing up so it's like going to a, a networking event standing in the back of the thing that drinking coffee and waiting for everyone to come to you so with LinkedIn, I think it's far easier than actually going, I mean, people get intimidated about going into halls and, and I get that. But on LinkedIn, you can use it in a, in a tool where 
you connect with someone and then start engaging with conversation. Hi, um, just simple, really. Like, hi, thanks very much for connecting. Um, I see we've got some mutual connections. If I could be of any assistance to you now in the future, then please reach out. And then generally people will come back. Thank you very much. That's really kind of you. And they go, oh, maybe I, I could help you in this way or I'm looking for an opportunity. And it's just building conversations. Networking is not, it shouldn't be as scary as people think. I think the networking words, maybe we need to reframe that somewhere. It's about creating relationships almost. Um, and there's many ways to do it, but they, they, I think where networking falls down is, and I said it earlier, is people abuse their network. So what they forget who, and I'm a really firm advocate of who planted the acorn, who, who owns that conversation. So for instance, if someone recommends you to someone, and that 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 recommendation ends up being a commercial entity for you at the end, or just a brilliant relationship at the end of it. And maybe that's two weeks, two months, two years later. Actually, go back and recognise that to the person who's done the introduction, and whether that's just a thank you, that buy them dinner, or whatever. But I'm a firm believer, always remembering who planted that acorn and who owns that conversation. And I think because that's where conversation, that's where networks get abused, and then they end up being a one-way traffic while on that and that go back to that book the go giver actually going into relationships and conversations about what can i give this opportunity what can i give this conversation this person rather than what i can take from it and i think if you keep giving eventually guess what you'll get given mm, wonderful and i've got one more lesson i'd love you to share one more piece of advice i'd love you to share this idea of um don't be scared to ask the people closest to you for help Yes. So that, that that's obviously resonated from my whole career, Lord. I mean, I've never, like I said earlier, I've never had a proper interview. So um so I'm in, I'm in recruitment. Um, but the the lowest hanging fruit in sales, we say about the lowest hanging fruit, go for the lowest hanging fruit. Ask if you're looking for opportunities or you're looking for people of like-minded people, go to the people around you, ask the questions, ask your mum, your dad, your parents, your aunties, your uncles, your friends, your friends, mum and dad, to whatever that actually have curious conversations with people about where you think you would like to go, what what journey you're on. And it's amazing how many people are willing to help each other. But until you ask that question about this is what I'm trying to do, this is where I'm going, et cetera, et cetera, and this is what I'm selling at the moment, this is what I'm doing at the moment, it's amazing. And when you start having conversations with people and you start opening up to people and start being a bit vulnerable and being curious, people are willing to help you. And I just say, don't be scared to ask the questions. Just don't be scared. I love it. Thank you so much. Now, Gary, I think you're happy for people to connect with you on LinkedIn if they'd like oh. to get more information from you. If so, could you let, let them know how to do that? Yeah, so I'm LinkedIn is one of the platforms I'm on mainly. So I'm on, at Gary Lincoln um, and I've got um, a blue dot on my thing. So Gary Lincoln and I'm at a company called TXM Group. Um, we're a recruitment company. So you'll find me there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up this episode. As ever, I would love your feedback or ideas for future episodes. You can reach me on UK at outlook.com. That's L-O-Z-Z-A-L-U-V-U-K at outlook.com. If you love this episode, please rate it five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. And I look forward to the next time.